0: Welcome back to another episode of the podcast of WISER, Women in Surgery at the Emory Residencies, where we share the careers and life stories of Emory surgeons across all specialties to recognize the diverse achievements happening right here at our own institution. I'm your host, Katja van Anderlecht, here with my co-host, Sophia Stilianos, a fellow fourth-year medical student at Emory University School of Medicine both of us currently applying into general surgery residency. Today, we are honored to have with us pediatric surgeon, Dr. Allison Linden. Dr. Linden attended Georgetown University for medical school and general surgery residency. During her residency sabbatical, she went to Harvard's T.H. Chan School of Public Health, where she was a Paul Farmer Global Surgery Research Fellow and received her MPH degree with a concentration in global health and population. Dr. Linden has completed three fellowships, the first being a Pediatric Surgery Critical Care Fellowship at Children's Hospital Los Angeles, the second, a Pediatric Surgery ECMO Fellowship at the University of Chicago's Comer Children's Hospital, and finally, a Pediatric Surgery Fellowship at Thomas Jefferson DuPont Hospital for Children. Dr. Linden is now a pediatric surgeon here at Children's Healthcare of Atlanta.
1: I'm Sophia, I'm a longtime listener of the podcast and a first time host. And I'm
0: Katya, we're both fourth year medical students at Emory applying into general surgery and will be your
1: host today. So welcome Dr. Linden, it's so great to have you. Thank you for being here.
2: Thank you so much for inviting me. I'm really excited about today.
1: Yes, we are very excited as well. And to start things off, we kind of want to go all the way to the start. Tell us about that.
0: Sure.
2: Um, I went to undergrad at Georgetown University in Washington, DC. And that was the beginning of my initiation into being a Hoya for life. Basically, I did my undergrad there. Um, I took two years off and um, I was a government major. wasn't really sure I wanted to go to medical school yet. I worked in public health for the federal government. realized then that I wanted to go to medical school and actually went back to Georgetown for medical school. And then I stayed there for my general surgery residency. So Hoya Saxa forever. Um, (laughs) And then I took this really circuitous route to finding pediatric surgery. I realized very late in residency, in the grand scheme of like when you should be preparing to kind of go into the pediatric surgery match um i realized basically at the very end of my pgy4 year and i subsequently decided to do a pediatric surgery critical care year out at children's hospital los angeles the year after i finished residency then i did a pediatric surgery ecmo fellowship at university of Chicago um matched into pediatric surgery um, but we match there's it's kind of a really early match so there's always kind of this gap year between when you match and when you start fellowship and so i um lived abroad in rwanda and eastern africa practicing general surgery teaching general surgery to rwandan surgical residents and then i did my pediatric surgery fellowship at Jefferson University's Pediatric Hospital, which is DuPont Children's or Nemours Children's in Delaware Valley.
1: That sounds like an incredible and rich journey. Um, Personally, I love a circuitous route because I also (laughs) didn't go directly into med school. Um, I kind of want to zero in. I think we'll get into pediatric surgery more in a bit, but if you could take us back It's the summer of 2007. There isn't a radio that isn't playing Umbrella by Rihanna. You just took your last shelf of your final third year rotation at Georgetown. um, And you're thinking about, I got to pick a specialty. I have to make my fourth year schedule. So how did you end up picking surgery? And what else were you considering at the time?
2: Yeah, equally circuitous. You're going to realize it's a generalized thing in my life. Um, It takes me a long time. I have to figure out all the options and experience all the options before I figure out what I like. But I went into my fourth year in medical school and um, still thought I wanted to be three different kinds of doctors. I thought (laughs) that I maybe wanted to be a general surgeon, potentially, very potentially wanted to be an infectious disease doctor. And then my other big option was emergency medicine. And so I literally set up, we call them acting in, internships or sub-I's in all three of those at the very beginning of my fourth year in medical school. And by doing each of them, I very quickly kept reverting back to general surgery. And I really never regret that decision. What I loved about general surgery is that I was still practicing medicine while also equally using my hands and literally creating kind of my own way to make the patient instantly better. I'm a bit of an instant gratification person, so I liked both of those
1: aspects. I know you said I think it was your PGY-4 year. When you really locked in on pediatric surgery, what got you interested in the pediatric aspect of it?
2: So my actually most initial going into general surgery, besides being a fantastic general surgeon, was global surgery. And so I knew I wanted a program where I could spend my research years getting a master's in public health and doing research internationally related to global surgery and access to surgical care. I missed my pediatric surgery exposure earlier in residency because of like rotations and how things fell. And so when I did it, my fourth year in residency at the very end, I just realized it was everything that I wanted in order to also really have an effect on being able to practice internationally. I wanted to be a general surgeon when I was done with residency Mm -hmm. and pediatric surgery really affords you that you're really doing this whole breadth of surgeries in both the chest and the abdomen, and you are not forced to be siloed into just one type of pathology or one area of the body. And so I loved that. I love working with children. I think they're incredibly resilient. They have just different, their comorbidities are different. They're usually congenital as opposed to acquired and they recover from pain and surgery, honestly, a lot better than adults do.
0: And then I love the family factor to it. Absolutely, thanks so much for answering those questions. Uh, Delving a little bit into your experience and your time in global surgery in Rwanda and Uganda, how do you feel like your time in those settings impact how you practice here in the States? I'm very
2: interested in equitable access to care and especially to surgical care. And whether that's in Atlanta, in Georgia, or in rural Rwanda, a lot of my research interests are in figuring out what are the, the barriers to equitable access to care, um, you know, just reaching a treatment hospital and then within the hospital and then after hospital care. And so I think that having the experience that I've had both in the field um, working in Rwanda and in Uganda and kind of investigating some of the barriers in access to surgical care is directly transferable to to what I experience and see here in Atlanta and in Georgia. And there are small things that I do day to day to address that, you know, whether it's really encouraging more telemed visits, because on average, so many of our patients travel over an hour to come and see us in clinic, and there's ways to mitigate that. Whether it's a language barrier, which is an access to care, and I make sure I go out of my way, we use these iPad interpreters, I always wait for the video interpreter as opposed to just the voice interpreter, because that makes a big difference in terms of kind of facial emotion and how it's used in language.
0: Absolutely. There are so many aspects that impact people's health outside of the walls of the hospital, and I think it's so important to delve into those and mitigate some of those uh, disparities.
1: Yeah, definitely. What keeps you interested in global health and then global surgery specifically, and how has it changed in the way you incorporate it into your career as an attending versus strictly when you were a public health researcher and the other kind of past experiences you've had?
2: Yeah, so I got my master's in public health during my research years in residency. I did a one-year program up at Harvard, they offer a one-year as opposed to a two-plus-year program for medical professionals. And that was fantastic because the vast majority of people I interacted with were not surgeons and were not even physicians. And so it really gave me this amazing network of people working within not only healthcare, but global health who were doing all sorts of different types of things, which... I think really broadens my viewpoint of of what I can do as a surgeon in the field of global surgery, which is kind of a really nascent, almost forgotten area of global health. So then that was the first year of my research time. The second year of my research time was, I did a global surgery research fellowship and I spent that time, it was the Paul Farmer Global Surgery Research Fellowship, again, kind of based out of Boston. And I spent the majority of that year in rural Rwanda, um, really doing a community-based survey looking at barriers to access to surgical care in Rwanda. And I won a grant for that and then created this survey and we translated it into the local language, which is Kinyarwanda. I had a whole team of Rwandan research investigators and we went out and and went house to house and had a whole surveying mechanism, etc. And then we created a way to validate those survey responses. And so it was a fantastic way for me to really get field experience in global health, in survey methodology, and really in global surgery. And so that was really nice because I just dug my head in deep into kind of like facets of public health and global health um, during that period in my career. And then instantly I went back to clinical training for PGY three through five. And like all of that, like was erased out of my brain. Not really, but it was like pushed way down low because ultimately I'll never forget this, but one of my main mentors in global surgery, the one of the best pieces of advice he ever gave me was it's your primary job to be the best possible doctor you can be. And so therefore that's what I always think about is one of my primary, if not my most important goal, train and then be the best possible surgeon I can be. Um, And so then I finished residency and I still was on the side doing a little bit of research, still staying in touch with my global surgery mentors, being involved with different initiatives related to global surgery. And then when I had this gap year between when I matched and was starting fellowship there, I had the opportunity to go back and practice clinically in Rwanda. They have one main national teaching hospital in the country. And so I served very similarly to to how academic faculty serve here in the U.S. I helped run the acute care trauma service there. And It was staffed and run by Rwandan surgical residents. And so that was a great complement to the research aspect that I had acquired previously. Now I have this great clinical experience. Then I went into fellowship. Again, all of that got squashed way down low for about two years during pediatric surgical fellowship. And then since I've been done in the last two years, I've really tried to pick back up in a comprehensive way ways that i could affect and work within the sphere of global surgery and those who are interested in global surgery and so here at emory i've been working with the surgical residents to create a global surgery curriculum which we've just started as a way to help inspire and create the next generation of global surgery leaders which I think is a really important thing to always be thinking about, is how do you create the next generation of what you're doing? And then I serve to help advise our residents. We have a general surgery resident every year who's in a specialized global rural surgery tract, which is a really, really unique, awesome thing that is created here and that Dr. Srinivasan deserves all the credit for. But it's also a really great component of the global surgery education that I think is available at Emory. At the School of Medicine level, I've been involved with a new kind of School of Medicine-wide global health course that's offered to residents across the different schools. And then I've also been working with colleagues that I've known from my previous work in Rwanda, and we've been applying for some grants in order to continue some clinical research that my Rwandan colleagues are interested in. But I think my my previous experience has given me the public health skills and then the clinical skills, and I've been able to put those together to still affect kind of a larger area of, of what is global surgery since I've been out of training.
1: No, that was a perfect answer. And it's clear that you do not like to stay busy. <laughs> um, but <laughs> jokes aside, I was... When you were talking, I was curious, what sort of differences or similarities did you notice training Rwandan residents versus your experience as a resident or with trainees here in the States, if any come to mind?
2: Uh, No, that is such a fantastic question. There are some like universal generalized aspects to surgical education that are similar no matter what environment you're practicing in what cultural you're surrounded by and i really think this is why i always think like our primary job is to be the best possible surgeon and that really comes back to having good basics you know so learning by doing the small things at first like even collecting the vitals and knowing what happened in the last 24 hours on your patient and trying to when you see a new consult gather all the data, come up with an assessment, come up with a plan. And so just teaching those basic skills is universal. And if you become good at those basic skills, you will become a good surgeon. And if, if you don't have those good basics, I think you struggle as you go up in training. I think one of the challenges or the differences that I wasn't expecting in Rwanda, and I think this definitely comes from just a cultural difference between the United States and Rwanda, the capability to do a lot of thinking outside the box or thinking beyond exactly what is right in front of you was a hard concept to teach. I wasn't expecting when I went there and it's not something that anyone is naturally normally good at whether that is here or in Rwanda Um, but I really think that I found that to be a huge challenge especially with the more senior Rwandan surgical residents and it was a great challenge and I definitely figured out how to effectively work through my own challenge of not knowing how to teach that um, and definitely saw results and I definitely saw a whole lot of change throughout my year there, as I mentioned, especially with the senior residents. But that was that was definitely a huge challenge that I think, I just think it's a concept that's promoted more here in U.S. education at all different levels, and it's just different in Rwanda.
1: Yeah, that's all super interesting. Thank you.
0: about your role as a mentor in Rwanda. You've also spoken prior about your mentorship from Dr. Robert Riviello during your time as a Global Research Fellow at Harvard and also as like a peer and colleague in your work in Rwanda. So what role has mentorship really played in your development as a surgeon? And how do you feel like your perspective on mentorship has just you've kind of transitioned from a mentee to a mentor?
2: Love that question. Very early on, when I knew I wanted to go into general surgery and then knew that global surgery was one of my passions, I very quickly just spent time looking up who was doing what in the field of global surgery. And at that time, there were even fewer people doing work in that field. So it was a little bit easy to find the leaders. And I reached out to them my first and second year in, in general surgery residency, just Cole called, like sent them emails and said, how do I do this? How do I get involved? Can I work with you in some way? And I got responses and got an invitation to go to a global surgery conference and help out at the conference, et cetera. So I really think taking the initiative to, and you don't have to know exactly what you want to do, you know, but if you find someone who you think is doing what you want to do, figure out a way to get in front of their face, (laughs) whether that's electronically or whether that's in person, it is worth all the effort to do that. And sometimes it's going to take three and four and five times that you're reaching out to them and saying, remember me, I'm just following up, et cetera. Like always follow up. That's, that is like a really, that is something I always tell people that I work with. And so I, I think that's kind of where, um, I first met Robert Rubiello's, like through those nascent efforts. And then when I, um, that was really a huge reason why I wanted to go to Boston to during my research time. And even during my MPH time, I sought him out and he was spending a lot of time abroad then. And so I spent a lot of time not hearing back from him, but I still like, just kept reaching out and reaching out and we finally connected and I started going to a, like a global surgery journal club that he was hosting and then he became my main mentor my second year in Boston during my global surgery research fellowship as well as John Mira who runs the fellowship but not only was he working in the field I was interested in he's just a fantastic person and his real kind of like boots on the ground mentality of how he wants to affect global surgery was right in line with how I would like to affect global surgery. There's a lot of different levels, I think, that you can work in within the field of global surgery. But I really like like working on the ground in the environment that is affected. And so that's what he did. But then I think as time goes on. Like I've had a lot of different mentors in a lot of different areas. And I think that a really important thing as I've now become a mentor and have mentees under me, I think a really important thing I realized is the need to continue to follow up with mentors. Even if you think you've like, really gotten everything out of them that you needed to for that period of your life when you were really like intimately being mentored by them, don't forget them a year, two years, three years later. Continue to reach out, continue to keep those relationships and those bonds because those people will continue to affect your life in so many different ways. I think something else that I've struggled with as I've become a mentor and now have mentees is really the need to be a reliable, available mentor. I think it's so important to be training the next generation in whatever that is. And I think to do that, I have to be
0: available. Great. Thank you so much for sharing all about your experience with mentorship. I can speak from experience (laughs) as well that Dr. Linden is a wonderful mentor. (laughs) And I'm uh, very grateful for all her time and advice.
1: (sighs) To stick with global development for a little bit longer, I wanted to get your thoughts on some of the gender dynamics in global health work. For the past decade, women have earned 70% of public health degrees in the US. Um, And similarly, a report in 2017 estimated that globally women make up 70% of the health sector workforce yet they also found that women only occupy one in four leadership positions in the global health sector so i've wondered why do you think women are drawn to public health and international development in such disproportionate numbers to men and have you observed or experienced this apparent glass ceiling in the sector potentially preventing women from achieving those leadership positions?
2: You guys are asking fantastic questions. (laughs) So I think that the, the first part of that, why do women tend to go into public health more? I honestly think that there's a bit of an altruistic aspect to that and inevitably in different kind of social emotional studies there tends to be a bigger aspect of altruism in the female population. I also think that public health as opposed to some of the other more traditional professions is relatively newer in the grand scheme of generations of professions. And because I think it was harder for women to get into some of the more traditional professions for so long, I think that global health presented a way for females to be able to get into the door easier and to really show their capability and their strength in that field. And so I think that is another reason why there are more females in public health. I also think that, unfortunately, public health doesn't ask the individual income that a lot of other traditional professions do. And I think that females have traditionally taken on these professions, unfortunately, that are not paid as highly. And it's also a, a profession that lends itself a little bit more to not as stringent like in-office work hours. And so I think that 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 is another aspect of why females can enter the profession and kind of climb the ladder a little bit easier than other professions. On the other hand, why aren't there more female public health leaders? I think that the same challenges exist in the public health profession as they do in all the other traditional professions. Um, You are... You know, there's gender inequities at the the social and the cultural level that that are structural and they will not instantly come down. Um, I think they're changing by all means, you know, and and by all means, I've been up against them as a female within the field of general surgery. Only about um, a quarter, 25% of all general surgeons are females. And so I think that um, I, I have definitely experienced some of those challenges to, to climbing the ladder. You know, there's like a great kind of quote by Caprice Greenberg that's like a talk she gave about, you know, um, sticky floors and glass ceilings. And I think it's really easy as a female to enter a profession and it the structural factors that have exist through generations to climb up are the reasons, same reasons why females aren't um, leaders in public health. I think that's changing. I think, you know, I can personally say that I, I honestly came into general surgery and didn't think about the gender inequities like I do now. Um, I think there's been a really good reckoning. A lot of that has come with racial and ethnic reckoning, especially the last few years. And, And I think it was something that I was overlooking that I shouldn't have as a female. And I think the way that I try and kind of day to day even support, like I said, the next generation is I think about, especially now I'm a parent, Um, and I'm a a female academic clinician and surgeon. And so I think about the the challenges, it forces me to think about the challenges I went through to get to where I am and how I can make those challenges easier for others below me. And I think that we as females don't do that enough for each other. I think we we are great in talking about our own challenges, but we don't do enough to break down those, those barriers and those challenges for the next generation. So I'm not sure if that totally answered your question.
1: <laughs> but it definitely that, did.
2: That's kind of my 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 obviously circuitous way to kind of touch on some of the factors that you just brought up.
1: No, it it definitely touched on everything I was wondering about. And I'm sure it's a conversation that we'll all keep wondering about and keep yeah. analyzing. And hopefully, you know, I guess wiser is hopefully one of those places where women can talk about their struggles together and not just by themselves. But yeah, thank you.
2: Yeah, no, I think what you all are doing with this podcast is so great. I think that the, the way, you know, the questions that y'all are asking and the ways that you're making us analyze and think about our lives and our careers as females are really important and just thinking about some of the ways we've overcome the challenges that we've gone through to get to where we are now
0: thanks for sharing your experiences with us and helping forge the way for other female surgeons (laughs) switching gears a little bit as we're coming to the close of our episode we were wondering if you could tell us a little bit about life outside of medicine for you what your favorite way to spend a day off is or, you know, just an evening home after a long day in the OR, some hobbies, passions of yours outside the walls of the hospital.
2: My main passion right now when I leave the hospital is my family and especially my four-year-old daughter. I uh, had her just five weeks before I started my pediatric surgery fellowship. So that was hard. That was one of the hardest things I've ever had to do. And my other passion and really one of the ways that I've been able to succeed as a female is my husband. And he has wholeheartedly supported everything that I've wanted to do and become. And so I think it's uber important to find whoever your partner and support is in life. As another piece of advice that does not have to be someone you live with or someone you will necessarily spend the rest of your life with. But to know who you're, what your support network is, is really important.
0: Another question that we like to ask all the surgeons that we interview is, what is one piece of advice you would give to young women aspiring to be surgeons? I know that you've already shared a lot with us throughout this episode, but Is there any sort of motto or piece of advice that you received that you've really carried with you through the journey or that you'd like to share?
2: Something to always think about as a young female surgeon or aspiring to be a female surgeon is never compromise who you are at the core of who you are. Don't change your personality or what you believe in or what you think you should say or shouldn't say because of the environment you're in like a very male-dominated environment, it's really important to stay strong. And you will at times get feedback that your opinions are too strong or you shouldn't say something in a certain environment. And don't ever let that hold you back.
1: That's very good advice, I think, especially for us going into interview season, too, as yeah. we're presenting our, our, the best version of ourselves, but also wanting to present an authentic version of ourselves. Exactly. Similar, what advice would you give to a younger version of you?
2: A piece of advice I would give myself is don't ever shy away from, from taking those turns or taking a chance or being willing to fail. I've definitely failed hard, you know, and had hard, hard days and had a lot of challenges and I'll have, but um, it has made me a better person, a deeper person, a someone better able to relate to others by putting myself in circumstances where I could fail. So I guess my advice to myself is keep putting yourself in places where you can fail and you will succeed. <laughs> even
0: if it's eventually and not immediately. (laughs) Yeah, thank you for all of that. I think that all that advice are things that we can all learn from and grow with as we continue our journeys to residency and beyond as well. Well, Dr. Linden, that wraps up our questions that we had for you for the interview. Thank you so much for joining us today. It's been a pleasure.
2: Thank you both so much. Your questions were fantastic and definitely make me think more about who I am. So great job.
1: We're glad. And again, just to echo what Katya said, thank you so much. We really appreciate you taking the time to do this. Thank you for tuning in to another episode of Wiser. If you like this episode, please rate and leave a review as it helps others find the show. You can also share with friends and family. Follow us on Instagram and Twitter at Wiser Podcast for updates. This episode was hosted by Sophia Stelianos and Katia von Anderlecht. Production support comes from Cameron Blount, Katia von Anderlecht, Julia Burns, and Francesca Giraudo. This episode was edited by Lizzie Rieger. Music is courtesy of Blue Dot Sessions.